Chapter Three of Nightmare Abbey. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Nightmare Abbey by Thomas Love Peacock. Chapter Three. Mr. Glowry returned from London with the loss of his lawsuit. Justice was with him, but the law was against him. He found Scythrop in a mood most sympathetically tragic, and they vied with each other in enlivening their cups, by lamenting the depravity of this degenerate age, and occasionally interspersing divers grim jokes about graves, worms, and epitaphs. Mr. Glowry's friends, whom we have mentioned in the first chapter, availed themselves of his return to pay him a simultaneous visit. At the same time arrived Scythrop's friend and fellow collegian, the Honourable Mr. Listless. Mr. Glowry had discovered this fashionable young gentleman in London, stretched on the rack of a too-easy chair, and devoured with a gloomy and misanthropical nil curo, and had pressed him so earnestly to take the benefit of the pure country air at Nightmare Abbey, that Mr. Listless, finding it would give him more trouble to refuse than to comply, summoned his French valet, Fatou, and told him he was going to Lincolnshire. On this simple hint, Fatou went to work, and the imperials were packed, and the post-chariot was at the door, without the Honourable Mr. Listless having said or thought another syllable on the subject. Mr. and Mrs. Hillary brought with them an orphan niece, a daughter of Mr. Glowry's youngest sister, who had made a runaway love-match with an Irish officer. The lady's fortune disappeared in the first year. Love, by a natural consequence, disappeared in the second. The Irishman himself, by a still more natural consequence, disappeared in the third. Mr. Glowry had allowed his sister an annuity, and she had lived in retirement with her only daughter, whom, at her death, which had recently happened, she commended to the care of Mrs. Hillary. Miss Marionetta Celestina O'Carroll was a very blooming and accomplished young lady. Being a compound of the Allegro Vivace of the O'Carrolls, and of the Andante Doloroso of the Glowries, she exhibited in her own character all the diversities of an April sky. Her hair was light brown, her eyes hazel, and sparkling with a mild but fluctuating light, her features regular, her lips full, and of equal size, and her person surpassingly graceful. She was a proficient in music. Her conversation was sprightly, but always on subjects light in their nature and limited in their interest. For moral sympathies, in any general sense, had no place in her mind. She had some coquetry, and more caprice, liking and disliking almost in the same moment, pursuing an object with earnestness while it seemed unattainable, and rejecting it when in her power as not worth the trouble of possession. Whether she was touched with a penchant for her cousin Scythrop, or was merely curious to see what effect the tender passion would have on so outré a person, she had not been three days in the abbey before she threw out all the lures of her beauty and accomplishments to make a prize of his heart. Scythrop proved an easy conquest. The image of Miss Emily Girouette was already sufficiently dimmed by the power of philosophy and the exercise of reason, for to these influences, or to any influence but the true one, are usually ascribed the mental cures performed by the great physician Time. 
Scythrop's romantic dreams had indeed given him many pure anticipated cognitions of combinations of beauty and intelligence, which, he had some misgivings, were not exactly realized in his cousin Marionetta. But, in spite of these misgivings, he soon became distractedly in love, which, when the young lady clearly perceived, she altered her tactics, and assumed as much coldness and reserve as she had before shown ardent and ingenuous attachment. Scythrop was confounded at the sudden change, but, instead of falling at her feet and requesting an explanation, he retreated to his tower, muffled himself in his nightcap, seated himself in the president's chair of his imaginary secret tribunal, summoned Marionetta with all terrible formalities, frightened her out of her wits, disclosed himself, and clasped the beautiful penitent to his bosom. While he was acting this reverie, in the moment in which the awful president of the secret tribunal was throwing back his cowl and his mantle, and discovering himself to the lovely culprit as her adoring and magnanimous lover, the door of the study opened, and the real Marionetta appeared. The motives which had led her to the tower were a little penitence, a little concern, a little affection, and a little fear as to what the sudden secession of Scythrop, occasioned by her sudden change of manner, might portend. She had tapped several times unheard, and of course unanswered, and at length, timidly and cautiously opening the door, she discovered him standing up before a black velvet chair, which was mounted on an old oak table, in the act of throwing open his striped calico dressing-gown, and flinging away his nightcap, which is what the French call an imposing attitude. Each stood a few moments fixed in their respective places, the lady in astonishment, and the gentleman in confusion. Marionetta was the first to break silence. "'For heaven's sake!' said she. "'My dear Scythrop, what is the matter?' "'For heaven's sake, indeed!' said Scythrop, springing from the table. "'For your sake, Marionetta, and you are my heaven. Distraction is the matter. I adore you, Marionetta, and your cruelty drives me mad.' He threw himself at her knees, devoured her hand with kisses, and breathed a thousand vows in the most passionate language of romance. Marionetta listened a long time in silence, till her lover had exhausted his eloquence, and paused for a reply. She then said, with a very arch look, "'I prithee deliver thyself like a man of this world.' The levity of this quotation, and of the manner in which it was delivered, jarred so discordantly on the high-wrought enthusiasm of the romantic Emirato, that he sprang upon his feet, and beat his forehead with his clenched fist. The young lady was terrified, and deeming it expedient to soothe him, took one of his hands in hers, placed the other hand on his shoulder, looked up in his face with a winning seriousness, and said, in the tenderest possible tone, "'What would you have, Scythrop?' Scythrop was in heaven again. "'What would I have? What but you, Marionetta? You, for the companion of my studies, the partner of my thoughts, the auxiliary of my great designs for the emancipation of mankind!' I am afraid I should be but a poor auxiliary, Scythrop. What would you have me do? Do as Rosalia does with Carlos, divine Marionetta. Let us each open a vein in the other's arm, mix our blood in a bowl, and drink it as a sacrament of love. 
Then we shall see visions of transcendental illumination, and soar on the wings of ideas into the space of pure intelligence. Marionetta could not reply. She had not so strong a stomach as Rosalia, and turned sick at the proposition. She disengaged herself suddenly from Scythrop, sprang through the door of the tower, and fled with precipitation along the corridors. Scythrop pursued her, crying, "'Stop! Stop, Marionetta! My life! My love!' and was gaining rapidly on her flight, when, at an ill-omened corner, where two corridors ended in an angle, at the head of a staircase, he came into sudden and violent contact with Mr. Toobad, and they both plunged together to the foot of the stairs, like two billiard-balls into one pocket. This gave the young lady time to escape, and enclose herself in her chamber, while Mr. Toobad, rising slowly, and rubbing his knees and shoulders, said, "'You'll see, my dear Scythrop, in this little incident, one of the innumerable proofs of the temporary supremacy of the devil. For what but a systematic design and concurrent contrivance of evil could have made the angles of time and place coincide in our unfortunate persons at the head of this accursed staircase?' "'Nothing else, certainly,' said Scythrop. You are perfectly in the right, Mr. Toobad. Evil, and mischief, and misery, and confusion, and vanity, and vexation of spirit, and death, and disease, and assassination, and war, and poverty, and pestilence, and famine, and avarice, and selfishness, and rancor, and jealousy, and spleen, and malevolence, and, and, and the disappointments of philanthropy, and the faithlessness of friendship, and the crosses of love. <sighs> all prove the accuracy of your views and the truth of your system, and it is not impossible that the infernal interruption of this fall downstairs may throw a colour of evil on the whole of my future existence. "'My dear boy,' said Mr. Toobad, "'you have a fine eye for consequences.' So saying, he embraced Scythrop, who retired, with a disconsolate step, to dress for dinner, while Mr. Toobad stalked across the hall, repeating, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth, and of the sea! For the devil is come among you, having great wrath. End of chapter